Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Henry H. Sapoznik to discuss his CD compilation, Proto Billy, the Minstrel and Tin Pan Alley DNA of Country Music. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Henry H. Sapoznik, the producer of Protobilly, the minstrel and Tin Pan Alley DNA of country music. It's a 3D, three CD set um, that came out a couple of years ago, new, sensational, and different from 1892 to 2017. So, Tell us the premise of of the Proto Billy set, Henry. Well, first, uh, I just want to make uh, one small correction. I am uh, the co-producer. My uh, my co-producer is the esteemed music scholar Dick Spotswood, who um, really kind of, in a way, uh, uh, conceived the project with his work on continuing the uh, recorded legacy of. Um, uh, traditional old-time music uh, records, country music uh, recordings um, from uh, derived from earlier uh, Tin Pan Alley and minstrel songs. So the the, the whole concept of of this was a um, a project at the Library of Congress that started in the 1970s um, uh, to document the uh, printed and uh, recorded history of songs in the uh, country music. Uh, repertoire and um, Dick Spotswood had inherited uh, the the project at the library uh, after its um, founder had 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 passed, and uh, I had been doing um, in some of my earlier reissues, like uh, a box set I did for um, for Sony uh, in two thousand five uh, uh, and Charlie Poole, where I compared Poole's performances to the recordings. That um, that he himself listened to and that informed his playing. That was the kind of the subtext of uh, the Proto Billy set, um, and Dick named it, and um, and that led to um, three years of of research of um, uh, locating both uh, the um, the better known uh, country music. And blues and uh, and 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 uh, early jazz recordings to their cylinder um, uh, predecessors, uh, which came from an amazing uh, collection of uh, David Giovannoni. Um, so, I mean, that's the subtext. And then it was, uh, as you hear, looking at the diversity of. Um, of of musics that came to inform what we know better western swing or or urban blues and stuff like that and before we go further i want to give a trigger warning and a disclaimer because the songs we're talking about were mostly written in the 1890s which as even the most cursory examination of american history will tell you was one of the grimmest periods in american history in which Segregation was imposed. The reforms of the post-Civil War era were rolled back. The Jim Crow era was launched with a wave of vigilante violence, lynchings, really foul court decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So racist terminology was just in the air in this period. And so if you're offended by stuff like that, might want to bow out on this episode. 
We, of course, condemn slavery, racism, segregation, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of magic in the music, and the stuff is really nuanced and complicated when you start looking into it. And we'll get to that. Um, a lot of these songs are written by black writers. Some of these songs have messages that will surprise you, despite on the surface appearing to be straightforwardly racist. So we'll, we'll be getting into the nuance and the details of this stuff as we continue. But first, I want to go into this. When I started hearing old-timey country music, I was in seventh grade. My mom was given the Smithsonian Collection of Classic Country Music set by one of my brothers. I'm learning about the Carter family, Jimmy Rogers, Dave Macon, um, you know, Gil Tanner and the Skillet Liquors, Riley Puckett, etc. But the general impression I was getting was that the material they were doing were was ancient, that they were reprising, you know, child ballads, which, you know, Child mm -hmm. was a, a folklore collector who had collected poetry and songs that traced their roots back to the British Isles. And there was this sort of idea that the Appalachians had preserved, you know, Anglo folk culture like it was a wax museum. But then in the 1990s, I started getting these rounder CD sets of Carter family song, uh, Carter family recordings. And in the liner notes, it would point out that almost every one of these songs copyrighted by A.P. Carter in the 20s and 30s was actually a rewrite of a song written in the 1890s for the theatrical stage. And that's kind of the premise of Protobilly. So this is something that's been blowing my mind for 20 years. It's a radical reassessment of the way I was initially taught country music originated in these ancient folk traditions. It turns out it is folk traditions, but it's by way of pop culture coming out of New York can you tell us a little about this connection and when when these connections were made, why they weren't made earlier, uh, and then and then define some of the terms of the era after you answer that one all? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, what we've come to see as traditional music was, in fact, uh, music created for a um, an active marketplace. Um, a lot of people are kind of surprised that in, in a lot of ways, the, um, the birthplace of, um, of, of burnt cork of blackface minstrelsy is, um, is New York City, which um, where had a, an incredibly, because of the, the, the whole kind of interactive um, uh, culture with port culture of working class people, of immigrants, of, um, uh, of uh, freemen. So um, uh, uh, New York was the center of the concentric circle. And it's ironic that the, the, this active city would find real interest in uh, blackface minstrelsy, you know, depicting um, rural southern life. You know, it's, a, it's like 110 miles to the south of New York City, but that's the closest most of the people who ever saw these shows ever came to actual um, southern life. But blackface minstrelsy before the Civil War and in the years um, after it uh, were uh, primarily, um, I mean, it was a white undertaking. It was white performers depicting uh, um, so-called black life uh, and in every aspect, uh, in movement, uh, in, in what was called Jump Jim Crow, the sort of acrobatic, grotesque dance form uh, to, um, to uh, uh, the stage black dialect. Um, uh, interestingly, of all the aspects of the blackface stage in, in, in the middle 19th century, as grotesque and as a kind of a freakish funhouse mirror, they were the one aspect of minstrelsy that was consistent that showed uh, black art to the highest context was in uh, banjo playing. There was never a time in the depiction of the banjo in terms of black uh, culture uh, that it wasn't pictured as artistic, as technically uh, uh, impressive, musically literate. So the, the whole thing, and you, you, you alluded to it before, the music in a lot of these songs is, is incredibly powerful. The textual context is the thing that kind of frames it in, 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 a, in a whole different segment. But, but here's the, 
the 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 thing as far as doing the historiography is that that period of black face minstrelsy where the performers themselves played music they were the banjo players they were the fiddlers they were writing the stuff that was in both the, the antebellum period and also in the reconstruction period once reconstruction ended and and uh, the post reconstruction and the rise of the jim crow era minstrelsy changed too and minstrelsy became an even is it possible it became an even more grotesque uh depiction because again like you said it was at against the backdrop of post Reconstruction, the reaction against the liberalization of, of, of black life in America. So, but that corresponded to the rise of commercial sound recordings. So we end up getting some weird echoes from an earlier period, even though a lot of that, as, and we put some of that on the Proto Billy set, that evokes an earlier period of black depiction that goes against the received narrative. That is, all of these depictions are equally bad. And as you said, there's a ton of nuance because the audiences then understood the subtext. We don't understand those subtexts now, but these guys were writing for uh, an audience, their own community, the ex exterior community. Um, I, I and, and again, just I'll get off the soapbox, but, I, I think it's really, really important that a set like this and this kind of research reminds us not to use contemporary uh, values, uh, I mean, contemporary today values in evaluating um, these materials from a, a different universe. It, it, the presentism doesn't work a lot of times because you end up using a very broad brush to, you know, to, to so that, that's, that's the context. Yeah, and there's there's waves of this. Like you say, there's there's the original wave of antebellum minstrelsy, uh, things like Jump Jim Crow, which is where the segregationist regime got its name from that song. Name, yeah. um, also, song Dixie, which of course is a famous song by Dan written Emmett, in New York City, uh, written in New York, again, right? By a guy yeah, from yeah. Ohio who was a union supporter, and then you know that's not that that has not been proven that's a theory there's, ah. there's uh it's a great story but unfortunately the actual paper trail again i went back over a lot of other people's work in contextualizing protobelly to see how much of this stuff is about actual contemporary reportage and how much of it is our choice of how we color that reportage and uh, so anyways, the Dixie thing can definitely be proved that the Virginia minstrels were playing that in New York City and they were identified with it. So that's what the historic paper trail tells us. And then there's there's an era of almost pro-abolitionist songs like Darling Nellie Gray by Benjamin Russell Hamby, which is right in there with Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harry Beecher Stowe, which is was an effort by white writers to build sympathy for the plight of enslaved black people and, and was part of the cultural consensus that led to the Civil War and the freeing of the slaves. And then there's a wave when Reconstruction starts of black performers are suddenly able to perform on the stage frequently as minstrels in blackface, you know, which, you know, lasts... Yeah. All the way into Burt Williams' day in the in the 20s, the first black Broadway star performed in blackface. Pigmeat Markham was performing in blackface into the 1940s. Um, you know, uh, Rufus Thomas started out in blackface. The great soul and funk a performer of the 60s and 70s started out in a blackface minstrel troupe. And you know, so it's 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 a complicated stream. There's there's a lot of nuance to it. And then, like you say, in the 1890s, there's this really ugly era of coon songs and that's what they were called that was a genre i've read somewhere that that mm -hmm. was up to 15 percent of the sheet music market in the 1910s was was in that genre but musically that's where ragtime and syncopation was introduced these are the vocal uh, analogs to things like you know um scott joplin's instrumental rags and so musical innovation is very much happening in this context of minstrelsy 
and later coon songs. And there was one song that actually kind of brought me to tears. It was written by black writers. It's called I'm the father of a little black coon, which I assumed was going to be some racist nightmare. And then one of the stanzas is when he grows up, I'll show this generation what can be made out of this lad, a president, a statesman of this nation. I mean, this is black power in the 1890s disguised under this slur. It's and just fascinating stuff and very complicated. I don't want to derail the whole conversation in that direction, but just kind of wanted <laughs> to get the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's this is listen, just tracking just tracking the nuances of of burnt cork of of what it meant in its time it it you you're absolutely right it's it's in and of itself not uh, absenting a lot of the other issues poor al jolson you know one of the, yeah. the worst movies ever made i mean and and yet he gets he gets you know there's a lot more instances all i'm saying is this is if if we don't literally understand american cultural history and, and understand its actual uh, you know, the, the engine that actually drives it, how race was a selling point, both positive and not so positive. Um, we're going to be trapped. We're going to be trapped not understanding this stuff and then just, you know, not wanting to deal with it at all. So this is, uh, this is, this is really kind of critical. Never, I never thought in my life I would say, if we don't understand about blackface minstrelsy, it's, a, it's an issue now in the popular world. I can't believe it. It's, you know, so, and, and yet here we are. Yeah, and, and you know, I think we, if we don't understand American history, we can't understand American music, and we can't understand ourselves or the time we're in. So I think the more and better we have an understanding of this stuff, the more clearly we can see see the good and the bad of it, mostly the bad, you know, the, the systemic racism and the way it's distorted our entire culture and our whole history. And yet there's so much good in this stuff, the, the musical foundation. And, and to me, Proto Billy's kind of a swerve because it's not just country music. Louis Armstrong's on this set. This is jazz. This is blues. I mean, this is the root of American popular music that goes through this weird transformation from you know, into vernacular art from stage art, from sophisticated, I'm sophisticated might be the wrong term, but from artifice, you know, from the self-consciously created vaudeville entertainment that then goes out into the American people and is reinterpreted by a generation of folk artists that are recorded in the 20s and 30s who remake American culture in a whole new image that's much blacker, that's much more rural, rural whites are given their chance to um, perform on record for the first time in the 1920s after being excluded for the first two decades of the recording era. So yeah, so it's just endlessly fascinating. Um, but I want to talk about some of the different, it's not a monolith. There's multiple types of um music here in the vaudeville stage and stuff's telling me it's time to cue our song so i'm just going to go basic stuff i'm going to go with the first two songs on the set and this is the original version of casey jones by millie murray from 1910 we'll hear 30 seconds of that and then we'll hear fiddle and john carson's cover of that from 1923 and it's an amazing journey this song takes in 13 years this is casey jones a brave engineer, Casey Jones was around his name, on a six-eight wheeler, boy, he won his fame. The caller called Casey at a half-past four, kissed his wife at the station door, mounted to the cabin with his orders in his hand, took his farewell trip to that promised land. Mounted to the cabin, see John with the daughter in his 
And that was Casey Jones. First, we heard Billy Murray's version from 1910. Then we heard Fiddle and John Carson essay the song for OK Records in 1923. Tell us a little bit about this song. Who wrote it? Who copyrighted it? Who was Billy Murray? How did he come to copyright it? And who was Fiddle and John or perform it? And who was Fiddle and John Carson? And how did he come into the story? Again, this is one of those great uh, song uh, uh, narratives that starts out um, as a quote unquote folk song. Uh, the, the credit has, um, it's always been sort of murky, um, originally credited to um, a, um, a co-worker on the, on the rail line with uh, Casey Jones uh, named Wash Saunders. But the ownership of the, of the song came out uh, because of a, a copyright uh, of a version uh, in the um, in the notes to um, to Protobelly, uh, I track the appearance of the song in newspapers long before uh, there was a, a sheet music. So that tells us how uh, it was present uh, before it was uh, hit. Once it became copyrighted, and once uh, from then, I mean, the time between the copyright, which was uh, Siebert and uh, Newton, uh, who, who copyrighted uh, uh, the, the song, who were themselves a vaudeville act. But uh, ironically, they didn't become uh, famous uh, for, uh, for doing it. And uh, in fact, they tragically died within a year or two of the, uh, of the publication. Um, the song was picked up almost uh, immediately. It was published in 1909 and then uh, recorded the next year by uh, Billy Murray, who was a uh, incredibly prolific early uh, recording artist in a variety of uh, dialects and harp songs. That was, um, and again, we have to remember this was the era before uh, microphones. So a lot of what made you a good recording artist was. Uh, the size of your lungs, and you had to be able to move a significant amount of air. Uh, and uh, because even even by this time, a lot of uh, the cylinder recordings, it had taken quite a while to develop the technology uh, to make um, a numerous uh, multiple copies of a recording. So in the earliest years, and some of the cylinders we're going to be listening to um, were um, made one at a time. But uh, the, so you had to have um, you had to be able to reproduce um, a, a identical recording. And Billy Murray showed right from the earliest days uh, that he could uh, he, he could be a beautiful elocution, uh, exceptional uh, uh, quality. I mean, his uh, his his intonation is spot on. Um, so and, and so it became and it sounded good on your home gramophone or phonograph or graphophone or whichever one you owned. Um, so sold a lot. In fact, sold so much that they um, uh, the, the stampers, the metal stampers that they used to make the, um, the, the disc um, were, were they had to go to alternate takes because the stampers had worn out uh, from making uh, records. Um, so how did someone like uh, fiddling John Carson in Atlanta in the 20s, uh, uh, the local fiddler. I mean, how did he pick this up? Because um, despite what a lot of people would like to think about the South uh, at that time, it was not cut off. It was not isolated. It was not culturally adrift. It, it, the people in the South were, were uh, just as attuned uh, to the trends and uh, musical uh, the diversity of New York because of excellent distribution of sheet music and of uh, the vaudeville and performing circuits. They were they were extensive throughout throughout the South. So it was not at all impossible for a street performer like uh, like John Carson to um, to keep his audience uh, their attention. Um, you couldn't be, I mean, it's the luxury of a young generation now that says, oh, I'm only going to play music from uh, the uh, Georgia backwoods from 1910 to 1920 or 30. The performers then didn't have a lot of that. They had to and did carry a diverse um, repertoire 
it was the A&R man, the, the, the record company said, no, 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 I don't want you to record that stuff. We're selling you as a hillbilly or we're selling you as a blues guy. Anyway, for John Carson, who was um, really uh, attuned to uh, the trends of his listening audience that crowded around him in front of the, the courthouse in Atlanta, um, and it's a contest fiddler. Um, so the, the journey between the two is, is, is both shorter than you might imagine. Um, and, and yet, you know, they are both joined in the same intention. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy process and it's, um, very interesting to me, the way that this sort of Ralph Peer, who was the A&R man who signed John Carson and <clears throat> got him recording, would push performers into a box, as it were. You know, they wanted blues numbers from black performers. They wanted string band songs from white performers. They wanted copyrights, and they weren't too picky about looking back into the archives to see that some of these songs had been copyrighted just 10 or 20 years earlier. Yeah, and they did. Absolutely. And there was no litigious. There were a few litigious copyright holders in the time at the time, and there were some some pretty epic lawsuits. Um, Wreck of the old ninety seven for one inspired dozens <laughs> of lawsuits, but maybe half a dozen lawsuits. But for the most part, these old copyright holders weren't aware of what was going on, and 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 their songs were just copyrighted again by other people. But I want to talk about some of the other genres. You've got these sort of topical songs like Casey Jones and Steamboat Bill. You've got another one, Don't Go Down in the Mine, Dad, which is about you know mining disasters. But some of these songs are older and came out of operas. And one in particular that I didn't have any idea came out of an opera was Home Sweet Home, which is one of these songs you just think of as always having existed. And so it was kind of fascinating to me to realize this was a song written by specific individuals for an opera in 1823, but then there's this whole wave of parody songs. So it was something that vaudeville and minstrelsy specialized in. Tell us about this number. The party that wrote Home Sweet Home never was a married man. The, 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 the Home Sweet Home story is, is so heartbreaking. I mean, the, there's a, an astounding irony underlying it is that John Howard Payne, uh, who wrote uh, the lyrics was a um, a career diplomat. He was uh, of that 19th century breed of people who who developed a a, a variety of, of 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 skills. Nothing which actually you know but prepared them for real life. But early on, he became attached uh, as a very young man uh, uh, to um, uh, the foreign service and. Uh, in fact, wrote Home Sweet Home. Uh, he, after, I think he left home, he was 17 or 18, uh, never to return, and uh, wrote the lyrics, I think, in some sort of personal reverie. It's impossible to know, but by tracking his life history and realizing that he, he, he these incredibly tender words, these incredibly powerful uh, and yet simple uh, sentiment, um, which, by the way, uh, the, the, the dynamic between opera and traditional music is a lot closer than some people would be comfortable with. Um, uh, we, uh, since the uh, easily 20th century, have made a, a distinction between high art opera and low art, like vaudeville or fiddle tunes. But in the 19th century, everything. People listen to everything. They were way more omnivorous than we're way too specialized in, in how we listen. So the, 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 the byways between high art and low art, eh, not that, not that far. So, so for an opera uh, uh, like, like the, um, uh, the Maid of Milan, Clary, that, that, that he wrote this for, this was, uh, I believe, I, it's never been recorded and I can't read music well enough to, to sit with the, with the orchestration, but it, it appears to me to, to have that powerful, simple folkiness um, that, that resonated with audiences who were not like really alienated from it. Um, and yet because of that simplicity, because of that wistfulness, because the man died away from home and was never even buried 
where he was from. I mean, so that subtext for that song, it also sets it up to be a fabulous target. So, so the, um, the, 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 the takeoff, um, because the immediate uh, popularity of Home Sweet Home, I mean, it didn't even, it, it rested not a minute between, then it happens with a lot of operas that songs cross over and just become just, just like uh, omnivorous. They're just, uh, everyone takes part in it. Um, so a piece like, uh, the party that wrote Home Sweet Home Never Was a Married Man assumes, rightly, a very high level of literacy of the audience so that they understand the context of that song. And then they are able to, like, brilliantly. I mean, by the way, there's a the whole thing in there, which I, I did not make the connection then because I wasn't thinking about it, but... Um, in the song where he talks about that she's waiting, the wife is waiting home with a frying pan. Um, I, 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 I didn't put together that this was the same time of the incredible popularity of, uh, of uh, the uh, uh, comic strip, uh, bringing up father, George McManus's uh, cartoon of uh, Maggie and Jigs. And, and, and it, she made popular the character with the rolling pin and, and poor Jigs. It was, a national cultural sensation. And, and, and it's, I, 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 again, didn't make the connection that the reference to it in this song shows, again, how, how literate Southern culture was, that they were reading the same thing that everyone else in the country was reading, and they could reference that. So a piece like this, which also reflects the popularity of live vaudeville of variety music, uh, explains why it's it's a, it's a really great performance and totally of its time and written by a woman and so that's yeah. another irony let me take a quick break and hear from our sponsors when we come back we'll talk about some more ironic twists of the vaudeville era so we've been talking about home sweet home and the parody song it inspired 50 years later or 80 years later, the party that wrote Home Sweet Home never was a married man. And you referenced the comic strip. And important to remember, comic strips at this time were in color. They were massive drivers of newspaper sales. The sitcom form was invented, the, de the detective serial. So many things that we are familiar with through movies and TV were being presented to, uh, to mass audiences in the, in the turn of the century uh, as newspaper strips. So very important art form. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And Fleta Jan Brown was the woman who wrote that song. And so um, her tongue had to have been all the way in her cheek on that. But it's one of a number of sort of vaudeville comedy songs. And I think it's important. Minstrelsy wasn't just blackface and, and grotesquerie. It was also the source of American comedy. Things like, why did the chicken cross the road? Or who was that lady I saw you with last night, those jokes all come out of the minstrel show. And so the the whole tradition of American vaudeville and entertainment starts with the minstrel show. By the 1890s, it's morphing into this new form, vaudeville, which is assimilating immigrants as fast as the country is. And a lot of it's through really rough ethnic humor. It was kind of the ethos of the melting pot era that you know, you're going to be able to take some jokes and give some jokes Black people, unfortunately, were kind of excluded from that give and take. They were on the taking side, not often on the, the giving side. But, you know, there was jokes about Dutchmen, jokes about Irishmen, jokes about Jewish people. Um, it was just how America was learning to become a nation in this period. But there's a whole bunch of these songs that have quite a twist to them. Things like The Smoke Goes Up the Chimney Just the Same, which has these crazy references to opium smoking that you just don't expect um, to be coming out of this period and and totally took me by surprise. But then you've got the sheet music here in the book. And, and sure enough, there's a picture of a big opium hookah uh, by the desk of this guy who looks you know like an H.L. Mencken newspaperman type character. So, uh, you know, it was a knowing era and and songs. Another one like Go Go Easy Mabel, which is about sort of a trope that was popular at the time of, of fellas taking ladies out for dates and the and the women hitting the menu at the restaurant a little harder than the gentleman's wallet was prepared 
to handle. Um, so, so, you know, you got that strain of, of music and, and represented, but there's also the sentimental st- type songs. I would think kind of After the Ball was the most famous of those songs. And that's represented by Charles Harris, who wrote After the Ball, his number Break the News to Mother. And that, and along with songs like When the Bees Are in the Hive and I Loved You Better Than You Knew, these are songs that you uh, show the more contemporary interpretation by artists like Bill Monroe and the Carter family, this sentimental strain of country music that carried on that sentimental pre-vaudeville pop. Um, how would you sort of categorize that family of songs and, and the kinds of artists that were then drawn to it in later eras? Well, uh, first thing is, again, context. And, you, and you're quite rightly, vaudeville, which grew literally, I mean, grew out of, of vaudeville. The, the, uh, the third act in the standard minstrel show was called the Oleo. And what the Oleo was, was a variety show. And as the, 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 the show around it, as the, the large Mastodon blackface shows declined, what really was left was that variety show of vaudeville. And it was, it's hard to really understand now how liberating uh, it was because entertainment, especially when you're in on the ground floor of any kind of momentous change, uh, you have the chance to reinvent yourself. You have the chance to uh, respond. I mean, the the the, the stage, and you, you point out in on the American stage, because of its immediacy, it was inventing itself as it was happening. And it was a mirror to how the, the Vox Populi saw what was going on around them. So, for example, like say the ethnic depictions made these transitions that the earlier transitions reflect the minority community. So blackface, uh, what you called uh, Dutch, which was really German, uh, Deutsch, uh, and Irish. And and as the emigrant population changed, those morphed. The the Dutch-German dialect comedian became the Hebe, the Jew comic, uh, Italian. And and these became tropes, uh, shorthand cultural shorthand for a, a, an entire civilization that, it, that they all understood the, the, the meaning of it and understood enough that they could play with it, against it, or off it. And as you say, the, 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 the tough, weird, ironic thing is that Black performers were finally able to a take to the stage to do this only in the post-Reconstruction era. The, the two caveats that came up during the post-Reconstruction era, and they had to do it in blackface. So their job as, as Black men, as human beings, as artists, was to find some way to, 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 to use the, the stringent limitations that they're forced into to nonetheless uh, create art um, and and to create something that transcends what they were shoehorned into doing. Um, so this became a, a real issue because they had to serve, you know, they were serving themselves both as a member of their society, they're serving themselves as an artist, they're serving themselves as a black man, and, and you, you end up making decisions. You end up having to make decisions. Not everyone was always happy with the decisions they made. They, the, the, the black author of the song, All Coons Look Alike, uh, to me, uh, spent the, most of the rest of his life regretting that he had to make, to write a song that became one of the cornerstones of blackface minstrelsy. Um, but guess what? They were in a real, they were in the trenches. They were, they were, creating their their own reality and it and it was an uphill struggle but everyone think of blackface in and in, in terms of how flexible it ends up becoming um when people have sort of grown up with a familiarity and a comfort and understanding so so a louis armstrong performance he's winking he knows totally well the context of what he's referencing it. And he knows that you know it too. 
So that performance has this extra level of musicality because it's built into this real subtle communication between the artist and 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 the people it's intended for and that's the magic of un, unlocking the 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 hidden context because most of the time we're 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 cut off from the context but keep in mind i mean things like you know the carter family for example were obliged to to play off this image of the the old home but keep in mind they were telling you all the time that that was not what they were about why Maybell's guitar. She's playing a modern L-style archtop guitar. That's the symbol that they are actually drawing from the popular mass culture and using it to create the southern homey style. That was a giveaway that that was like right, you know, the purloined letter. It was right in the open. But that's that's the subtext of this thing is that this isn't what you're making it to be. Uh, the, you know, like uh uh, like you said, Ralph Peer told, um, uh, 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 you know, told, uh, you know, A.P. Carter, go out and collect those songs and 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 we'll copyright them. Um, and A.P. Carter couldn't write that stuff. Um, it was clear that it was just a kind of musical colonialism. And and who better than than Ralph Peer, who went on to start Southern music, the biggest Southern um, uh, the, the publisher, music publisher in Nashville. Um, so the idea of ownership of this stuff always uh, was about that sense of ownership, not, you know, the, the cultural ownership, but man, who owns the copyright? Who's, whose hand is on the spigot? So this, uh, something like this reveals that kind of weird back and forth between how mass and popular culture it, it informs how people respond to it. And let's hear another a pair of songs. And this is Darling Nellie Gray, which was written in 1856 by Benjamin Russell Hanby. And I mentioned it. It was an abolitionist song designed to elicit sympathy for the plight of the slaves and build support uh, for a civil war to end slavery. But then it's done. Uh, we've got it done by the American Quartet in 1902, a, a very straightforward version then it's done in 1937 in a radical reinterpretation by Louis Armstrong himself with the Mills Brothers. Let's hear it, and then you can tell us about it when we come back. Darling Nellie Gray, first by the American Quartet and then by Louis Armstrong and the Mills Brothers. Tell us about this reinterpretation of this song because there's a real wink and a nod going on with the Mills Brothers' take on this song, even though it was initially a pro, you know, anti slavery, pro abolitionist song. By the time, by the 1930s, it's associated with all this other racist material. It's like America's racist past taints everything. And Louis Armstrong and the Mills Brothers are putting their own swerve on the ball. Absolutely. And, and in here, again, let's look at the context and, the, and, 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 and what they already knew. Is that something like Darling Nellie Gray had already become part of the collective popular 
uh, it, it was part of the American song bag at that time because it was so um, uh, it was so well marketed. In fact, God, the story, poor Benjamin Russell Hanby. I mean, talk about a, a, a hapless nerd. I mean, comes up with this with this song, well-meaning. And here's the thing. I mean, his father was a firebrand abolitionist. He came from a, a, a family that was, they were associated with the Underground Railroad. I mean, this is, so this is the level of discourse. So, so it's big that he writes this song, like fully formed, um, sends it to the largest music publisher in the epicenter of the uh, of the uh, abolitionist movement in Boston, sends it up to Boston to the, the largest publisher there, uh, B. Dixon, never hears back, and then finds out that it's a hit. He had someone said, oh, but he, he, he had no idea. Contact them. I love the, the, the response that he got when he said, hey, you published my song. What, what's going on here? What's he, and, and they wrote back, Nellie Gray is sung on both sides of the Atlantic. We have made the money and you the fame. That balances the account. <laughs> that is the music biz uh, uh, encapsulated exactly, in one sentence, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Benjamin Russell Hanby is the patron saint of, of the professional downtrodden musician that, that who are always asked to play for exposure. And this is like, so, so dig. So this guy writes the song in the, in the most well-meaning, the most well-meaning of, of, of intentions gets ripped off. The song becomes quite rightly incredibly popular, but the context, that important second verse is like surgically removed without that second verse the whole setup of the rest of the song kind of makes no sense so it it became part of the general canon of songs about black life in that period you, you, you got that this is this rivulet that it splits off and it becomes associated with songs that it was diametrically opposed to so, you know, uh, whether, whether Pops knew that it, it had an anti-slavery original intention, I, I don't know. No one knows because it didn't live. It didn't live as that song that they would have inherited a song with that context intact, right? So, yeah, it just becomes part of this gross sentimentalization of the antebellum South. It gets it gets lumped in there with my old Kentucky home and old yeah. folks at home, and some of which Foster had some of these positive intentions as well, arguably. But other songs were just blatant romanticizations of this brutal period of slavery that had to just mess with people's heads. I mean, it was definitely part of the propaganda of reimposing Jim Crow. And for somebody like Louis Armstrong, uh, it definitely deserved a tweak and a kick. And it does. And you, and you both use the term, he's winking, you know, that old Kentucky shore, that old Kentucky, he's winking. He's putting big air quotation marks around that old Kentucky shore because that's a trope. That's the stylistic trope. And P.S., you know, I mean, you know, it's a, a lot of this stuff... <sighs> What a mess. What a mess that the, the, the marketplace was. I mean, this was, you were competing. You were competing in a limited framework. I mean, if you weren't doing, if you weren't writing stuff, if you weren't performing stuff that fulfilled the popular conception, um, it's just, it, 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 it didn't make any sense. You didn't break into vaudeville. You didn't break into this stuff if you didn't want to uh, be part of 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 how the rules um, were 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 changed, but again, by the time Louis Armstrong and the Mills brothers inherited, by the time this came to them, and P.S. This was part of a uh, th that session, that recording session. They actually looked at a number of like Stephen Foster songs and songs of the 
the, the reconstruction, the post-reconstruction, it was a really interesting um, uh, the recording session that they consciously went into this repertoire and, and brought out um, their own, you know, kind of personal statements about what they meant. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I've so many questions. I wonder whose idea it was to do these songs and if Louie and the Mills Brothers were, um, you know, subverting the idea of their A&R person. If somebody had in mind just to do a straight sentimental retelling of this stuff in a racist way, or if the A&R guy was in on the joke with Louie and the Mills Brothers as well. It's just, you know, just fascinating stuff and and so much more than initially meets the eye. And I want to talk about another character who comes up in this, and that's May Irwin, who in some ways is kind of a feminist hero. She's this popular singer uh, on Broadway in the 1890s, um, best known for the song Bully of the Town. Really empowered woman, kind of woman hear me roar type stuff. And yet she became, quote, the queen of the coon shouters. And her songs are today rightly seen as seriously marred by racism. I mean, they're dropping the N-bomb, the, the cliche of this, the razor blade wielding black man is all through this. But at the same time, it reminds me of gangster rap as much as anything else. I mean, some of the songs had black writers. The message of Bully of the Town is straight machismo. It's it's about conflict and, and triumph and, and you know chasing your enemy. It reminds me so much of the NWA and the Ghetto Boys and the kind of gangster rap I grew up <laughs> on when I was a young kid. Tell us a little bit about May Irwin and, and who what when, where, and why, and how that song got picked up into the country music repertoire. Again, it's like you could just go off on just one of these stories because they're all larger than life, and they really kind of talk about if he really wrote a script, it wouldn't follow this trajectory. So so Mayorin, along with her sister, they were Canadians, and they were uh, they uh, step dancers and uh, they were stage performers, uh, kid performers. And and for the most part, uh, May Irwin's career, and you're absolutely right, the empowerment thing, there was a whole cadre of, um, of again, go back to the concept of vaudeville and to the liberating platform that it offered. You, you could make yourself into whatever you chose to make yourself. And 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 the uh, the Irwin sisters did. May Irwin did did much better. Became really popular on on stage. P.S. Not at all associated with black blackface. In fact, she had already become a major star. Oh, what was her name? There was a, not Nellie Bly. She was a correspondent. There were a couple of different. Uh, uh, women performers on vaudeville, Irish American performers who had this real kind of lusty, kind of real strutting kind of uh, uh, a persona, and that's what that's what May Irwin had, and she was actually uh, sold this song. She was already on Broadway. She was already a star, and she was sold the song uh, "Bully of the Town" by a um, a sports writer. And um, uh, again, the era where sports was entertainment and entertainment was sports, there was very little line separating them. Anyway, um, uh, Charles uh, uh, Trevathan, and he sold her the song. She was in the middle of another show and, and she bought the song and unanticipated um, it became a huge uh, hit. And um that was it, that her career was completely consumed by the, 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 the underlying blackface trope. Um, so this, Trevor Fan, who never wrote really another, the only other, the only other uh, major thing he wrote, uh, other than his column, which I've never read, but he wrote a book on, on, on how to play golf. But the, the, the underlying, because um, this song, 1896, we're already in the, 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 the post-reconstruction era, so it makes use of a lot of the accepted uh, stylistic tropes. Uh, the razor blade, uh, the, 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 you know, the dangerous, the coon that was the, um, the dangerous 
uh, a frontal lobe black character as opposed to the Tom. P.S. Talking about Uncle Tom, the two most popular um, in, 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 in general theatrical uh, productions that most people across America were, were seeing these, you know, small, you know, uh, theater companies. But blackface was uh, equal to that were the Uncle Tom um, shows. The Tom shows, which were staged versions of, of the book, were they kind of don't get the same love because on the one hand, the term Uncle Tom has been reinvented apart from the original intention of um, how it was intended and how the audience perceived it. Those two things are, are critical. So they were revolutionary, but in the passage of time and the change of the meaning. But so anyway, so 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 the Tom shows uh, were were a palliative to to the blackface shows, but the the, the nomenclature of the songs you'll find the these songs that like use you know the razor blade trope and, and all this that's all from the 1880s that's post-reconstruction that wasn't the repertoire of uh you know the actual minstrels who actually played their instruments the subtle but important difference so trevor fan wrote this song that again part of the mythos and I find this in like every um, every iteration of the various songs that became uh, Tin Pan Alley hits. The whether true or not, the backstory that the composer says is, "Oh, I was in New Orleans and I heard this black boy in an alleyway doing this," and and it was always a variation of that story. So on the one hand, they were saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, I didn't write it," but on the other hand, it's that I was smart enough to take it. And so ownership of, of, of this material is kind of a funky affair. In any case, became a huge, huge, huge hit. And, and in fact, the, the weirdest thing you talk about, and we're just going to stay with May Irwin on this, the, 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 the strange thing of how uh, songs become recontextualizing. You think, oh my God, and like you said, oh, it's tainted by its its association with blackface minstrelsy. Her follow-up hit out of having done uh, uh, the, the bully of the town, her next um her next hit was a song called The Foolish Frog, also written by Trevor Than. This song also was a huge hit, but this song was rectified by none other than Pete Seeger. He reinvented this song, decunified it, if you will, and made this a cornerstone of the of of the progressive left wing, you know, anti-racist uh, of folk song cadre. Imagine that 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 the context of this thing became so completely reinvented that uh, uh, it's, there, there was no, never even an issue. Uh, Pete Seeger himself appears not to have known that it had blackface um, uh, uh, by the time uh, he reinvented it. So this is a, a, a squirrely process. Yeah, this is complicated stuff, and we've just scratched the surface. The, the set is amazingly illuminating. Proto-Billy... The Minstrel and Tin Pan Alley DNA of Country Music. Henry H. Posnick has been my guest, the co-producer, along with Dick Spotswood and, um, and I'm forgetting the David name. David Giovannoni. Yeah, David Giovannoni, who contributed his collections of cylinders to this process. So, Henry, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and trying to begin the process of understanding this dark and twisted, and yet there's some gems in this stuff. I mean... People like Louis Armstrong, Hank Williams, the Carter family, so many of the musicians that we think of as the bedrock of American music were actually getting this stuff from even earlier um, antecedents and pioneers from a very remote era in time to us, not as remote in some ways as we would like. So, uh, Henry, it's been a treat, and the, the set, Proto Billy, the Mitchell and Tin Pan Alley DNA of country music is highly recommended. Thanks so much for coming on the show. 
Thanks for asking me. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Paul Reese to discuss his book, The Ox, the authorized biography of The Who's John Entwistle. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. <laughs>